Hey everyone, it's another episode of what is becoming a fast-growing Vasculitis Foundation podcast series, and that is the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast with Kaylee Bynes, my outstanding co-host. I'm Ben Wilson, and we're back for yet another episode. We're, we're just chugging right along, Kaylee. The whole world is at a standstill, but but not us. We're, 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 we're just pounding out the content, and we have another really fun chat today with somebody within the community who has done uh, just a tremendous amount for for all of us, and especially for Kaylee in particular, since you you know this uh, person specifically, Kaylee, uh, in Caitlin Quinn, a rheumatologist who has done a lot of different things. If you're familiar with the VF and some of their uh, foundational awards and some of the things they have done, she was the recipient of the 2017 Clinical Research Consortium Fellowship, which is pretty exciting, and uh, since then has continued to do a lot of Great thing. So, Kaylee, first off, hello. Excited for another one of these episodes. Uh, tell us about Dr. Quinn, because you obviously know her a lot better than I do. And I know you were really, really excited to have her come on our podcast today. I am. Uh, I'm sensing a theme. I think you think this about every single uh, expert we have on, and, and that's correct. I'm, I'm excited to talk to all of them. Um, I'm particularly excited to talk to Dr. Quinn because she is my rheumatologist. Uh, she actually took over the clinic at Georgetown, the vasculitis clinic at Georgetown, from Dr. Thomas Cups, who was part of the team that originally diagnosed me. Um, and it's really just cool to to have this side of a conversation with her. Dr. Quinn uh, got her medical degree from New York Medical College and then did her internal medicine residency and rheumatology fellowship at Georgetown, which is where I was diagnosed. Um, and then, as you mentioned, she had the fellowship with VF uh, in conjunction with the NIAMS fellowship at NIH, where she was doing a lot of vasculitis research uh, from a clinical perspective and, and looking at different imaging technologies and what that means for diagnosis and ongoing treatment. Uh, she's just a really interesting person, and her work is really fascinating, so I'm excited to talk to her. Yeah, and I think part of what makes someone like Dr. Quinn, so interesting as far as you think about this from medical professional standpoint and trying to learn and learn more about some of the, the individual things that doctors are trying to do. And you think about some of the more traditional approaches that are, have been out there just for as long as we've known about vasculitis and have started to become a little more outdated. I think what stands out to me in, in the research of Dr. Quinn is just how she has really tried to look at some of these newer newer thoughts and, and kind of go outside the box. I don't know if that's the right way to, to describe it, as we'll obviously ask her more about it, Kaylee, but it certainly has been uh, interesting just to, to see some of the new mechanisms that she's looked into, and they've, they've produced some really uh, interesting results as well. They have. Um, I've been part of one of their studies, actually, with uh, Dr. Quinn and Dr. Grayson at NIH, and they were doing uh, markers of relapse, basically, and, and whether or not your disease activity uh, can be you know, measured and compared to your relapse uh, likelihood, because for vasculitis, the tr tricky thing is once you have diagnosis, it's really hard to have any sort of measure of ANCA titer that's going to tell you whether or not you're going to relapse and the relapse rate is so high that it's really something that a lot of researchers are exploring right now is how do we do a better job of predicting that, uh, predicting disease activity, predicting, you know, when patients are going to really run into some trouble. Yeah, and it's something that, as you allude to, it, it affects all of us, really, whether you're a patient or if, if you're a medical professional and you're, you're dealing with a patient that has these, these issues. So Dr. Quinn has done a tremendous amount of work and we're really excited to bring her on. Again, Caitlin Quinn, 
as we'll be visiting with her right after this. And we now welcome in Dr. Caitlin Quinn joining us from uh, the East Coast. She and Kaylee, I feel like I'm on an island. You two are on the uh, the East Coast in uh, the D.C. area while I am out in San Diego. But uh, Dr. Quinn, we just talked about some of what she's done with the vasculitis community and, and some of her uh, her work previewing uh, this guest on our Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. So Dr. Quinn now joins us. Thank you so much. How how are you holding up during what is certainly a crazy time for all healthcare professionals everywhere? I am doing well. Thank you for having me. It's certainly an unprecedented time, um, but we are holding up okay. Yeah, that, that's good. It's good to hear all things uh, considered, just trying to make the best out of the situation. And you know, I, I was talking earlier about uh, some of the different things you have done within the community that we wanted to get into and and kind of educate a lot of other medical professionals who maybe are, are taking it, it's a busy time, but they're, they're certainly wanting to know more about some of the specific things that rheumatologists and other doctors are doing in the study of vasculitis. And I know what interested me when I was just reading about and I, I remember when you were given that uh, the the VCRCV fellowship back a few years ago in 2017, how you had said at the time that really for you, the most fascinating part of your initial initial uh, rheumatology service in, in that rotation was just the complexity of seeing a lot of vasculitis patients and how that kind of started your interest in this. So I guess as you reflect now a few years, it's kind of crazy that now we're in 2020 and it's been a few years since that Thinking about the complexity and some of the developments that we've uh, we've seen, how has that kind of impacted your overall outlook on vasculitis and studying it um, as a whole, just as it relates to the patients now that you've been able to see and how those complexities just impact how research has developed as a whole? Yeah, I became particularly interested in caring for patients with vasculitis during my two-year rheumatology fellowship that I did at Georgetown. And like you're saying, vasculitis can be one of the more difficult diagnoses to make due to the wide variety of presentations. And it's very rewarding to be able to work with a multidisciplinary team of specialists to come to a diagnosis and really have a significant impact on someone's quality of life and then be able to follow them over time and really get to know them. Um, so after I finished my rheumatology fellowship, I wanted to pursue more specialized training in vasculitis and become more involved with vasculitis research. And so I applied for and was awarded a vasculitis fellowship through the Vasculitis Foundation and Vasculitis Clinical Research Consortium. And as part of that, I spent time working at the NIH with Dr. Peter Grayson at the NIAM Vasculitis Translational Research Program. And I've continued since my fellowship to be able to spend part of my week there doing research in vasculitis and seeing patients in the vasculitis, and then the other part of my week still seeing patients and working with trainees at Georgetown. Um, so it's been a really great experience. Yeah, and the thing I you know would, has always jumped out to me, especially from just as being a patient, is that when you go through that whole process, I think what is is kind of in that gray area that I mean, there are a lot of different gray areas for vasculitis patients, but I've always felt like one of them is just the thought that, like in my case, I was actually diagnosed by a pulmonologist with EGPA. I had rheumatologists who 
looked at different things. I had, there were a few different pulmonologists who looked at things, certain other doctors who had, you know, various involvement or knowledge of vasculitis. And it always, at least in, in the past, and I think we've seen a development in this, it's always kind of seemed like just a mismatch of, <laughs> of different sorts of people trying to come to that, that determination, like as you were, you were talking about and how rewarding that can be. But what have you seen now as, and now you're obviously in a position and at a, a location where you have some of the leading experts who are working on this sorts of stuff every day, but just as a whole, and as it relates to patients around the, or potential patients around the country who are trying to get diagnosed quicker, have you seen an increase in that, in that knowledge now? Do you, do you feel like there are people maybe outside of your specific focus that are, are getting better at that whole concept of picking up on things, being able to diagnose better, even if your specific focus is, is on different things, whether it is, say, pulmonology or rheumatology? I think so. We work really closely with a lot of different specialists, um, nephrologists and kidney specialists, the pulmonologist, um, ENT a lot of times. And I think a lot of them have come to a point where they're recognizing if something may seem concerning or seem like it could be a vasculitis and referring them over to us for at least an evaluation. Um, but it's definitely a team effort and we rely on their evaluations as well to help make a diagnosis. So I think uh, the interesting part for me about your work in particular is that Ben and I talk a lot about ANCA-associated vasculitis and, you know, what that means in terms of this diagnostic team, but you've done a lot of work with the large vessel vasculitis, GCA, um, Takeyasus. Can you just talk a little bit about the differences between these vasculitis types, um, especially in terms of what clinicians are looking for? Because I know some of our listeners aren't necessarily as familiar with the whole body of what it means to have AAV. Yeah, so when we talk about vasculitis, we're referring to inflammation within the walls of blood vessels. And there are many different types of vasculitis that often end up being classified based upon the size vessel they affect. So you can have large arteries like the aorta and its primary branches affected in large vessel vasculitis with tachyostes arteritis and giant cell arteritis being the two main forms. And then you can have medium-sized arteries affected in other conditions like polyarteritis nodosa or Kawasaki disease in children. And then you can also have small vessels affected like an ANCA-associated vasculitis where you have inflammation at the level of the capillaries, the arterioles, the venules. And clinically, patients present very differently depending on what size vessel is affected. So for instance, the features we often see in ANCA-associated vasculitis are from capillaritis or inflammation of the capillaries. And if you get that in the lung, it can cause pulmonary hemorrhage or bleeding into the lungs. In the skin, you can get rashes like palpable purpura. And in the kidneys, you can get glomerulonephritis. So in contrast, we don't typically see any of those features in large vessel vasculitis. Um, and again, the two main forms of that are tachyostes arteritis and giant cell arteritis with age being the primary determinant and tachyostes arteritis affecting younger patients under age 40 at onset and giant cell arteritis affecting older patients over age 50. But in these diseases, we instead see abnormalities of the aorta and its primary branches, which includes the subclavian and axillary arteries, which supply blood to the arm, 
and the carotid and vertebral arteries, which supply blood to the brain. And over time, these arteries can become damaged as a result of inflammation with narrowing and stenosis. Sometimes they can become fully occluded and sometimes they can become dilated with aneurysm formation. So patients with large vessel vasculitis, we see present with symptoms like headaches, lightheadedness, particularly with position changes. Um, They get vision changes and they get limb claudication where they, for example, experience pain and fatigue with repeated use of their arms, like washing their hair or blow drying their hair. And that's due to the subclavian and axillary arteries, which are supplying blood to their arms being affected. And these patients also have physical exam abnormalities with blood pressure being low or absent and sometimes having weak or absent pulses. So the clinical presentations are often very different depending on what type of vasculitis and what size vessel is being affected. And what's interesting too, and you talk about some of these specifics, it kind of goes back to initially the the whole thought of the complexity of of this disease as a whole. And you think about some of the specific uh, forms in the way that which it presents itself and how you studied it. At least, I don't know, Kaylee, if you agree with this, but like, I, I feel like from being within the VF and being a patient now for five, six years, as Kaylee and I both have been, I mean, I've met some patients with Takiasus and, and kind of hearing their stories. And as GCA has been included in this as well, where I mean, we've all obviously had pretty bad side effects and we've all kind of went through a lot in, in our respective journeys. But I feel like Takiasus, it, it's one of those diseases where as a patient, you just kind of you get you get everything thrown at you and, and then some and, and then the kitchen sick. Basically, it just feels like one of those, at least from what I've seen. And again, I don't know how if you've seen this, Dr. Quinn, overall with the research, but one of those diseases where the the amount of different things you have to deal with as a patient, I'm sure makes it somewhat challenging as the rheumatologist or for you trying to study these and, and kind of work on the, the topic of the large vessel with vasculitis as a whole, just because of how many different adverse things are being thrown at all these patients and how so many complications uh, tend to arise. Do, do you feel like that has made the the interest for you even greater just because within an already complex world, I've always gotten the sense that those couple of diseases within the large vessel family have provided even more complexities than, than maybe you see in some of the others. Definitely. I think Takayasu's arteritis in particular is an area where uh, research has lagged behind a little bit in the sense that there aren't a lot of randomized control trials and there aren't a lot of treatment options for patients with Takayasu's arteritis. Um, so part of the research that I've been working on um, with the NIH group has been specifically focused on Takayasu's arteritis and trying to understand it better. And hopefully down the line, we can have more successful randomized control trials and treatment options um, because these patients sometimes um, can have very severe presentations. They can have strokes that happen. Um, and aside from steroids, there are not a lot of treatment options. So that kind of brings us into your research specifically with uh, diagnosis and looking at kind of long-term effects and, and predicting flares. 
can you talk a little bit just about your work at NIAMS and just your work in the clinic, uh, talking about the differences between the more traditional approaches? You know, I was diagnosed through uh, titers and through a kidney biopsy uh, versus some of your newer uh, imaging technologies like PET scans, for example. Yeah, so my research interests have spanned many different forms of vasculitis, but as you alluded to, my primary research focus has been studying large vessel vasculitis and specifically imaging in large vessel vasculitis. So work from our group has focused on the use of PET scans in large vessel vasculitis for both diagnosis and monitoring of disease activity. And I'm glad you brought up biopsy and ANCA testing because these are often used to aid in diagnosis and ANCA-associated vasculitis. But we don't have a similar biomarker in large vessel vasculitis. And usually we're not able to get a tissue diagnosis from biopsy because we aren't able to go in and biopsy a large vessel like the aorta, other than a few cases where patients may have undergone a surgical procedure due to their vasculitis and we get a piece of aorta that way. So that's why we're investigating the utility of different imaging modalities, including PET scans, to help aid in diagnosis. And what a PET scan is, it stands for positron emission tomography, but it is a nuclear medicine test where a radio-labeled tracer is injected. And most commonly, this is something called fluorodeoxyglucose, or FDG, and it is essentially radio-labeled sugar water. Um, so the patient is injected with this radio-labeled sugar water, and we're able to get a look at metabolic activity throughout the body. So PET scans are used often in oncology to look for metabolic activity in cancers and tumors, but in large vessel vasculitis, we're looking for uptake in the large arteries to suggest areas where there's ongoing active vasculitis. So in your research, I know you were just recently published, was it last month, um, in Seminars in Arthritis and Rheumatism? You talked a little bit about your study, um, and I, I would love it if you could just go into that a little bit more, especially in terms of recruitment and, and what this means for, for the future of using PET scans and, and other sort of diagnostic tools for uh, GCA and Takayasu's. Yeah, so most studies of PET scans and large vessel vasculitis have been focused on the time of initial diagnosis. And so part of our ongoing research work has been investigating the utility of PET scans to monitor disease activity over time and also look at whether persistent activity on PET scans can predict future relapses in some patients. We often see that patients may have ongoing vascular disease activity on PET scans when they appear to be doing well and in clinical remission. And in caring for patients with large vessel vasculitis, it can many times be difficult to determine if a patient's vasculitis is active because they don't always have overt clinical symptoms and they can have normal lab tests, including their acute phase reactants, um, ESR or sedimentation rate and C-reactive protein. But we've seen that even patients who appear to be doing well with normal lab tests can develop these new kind of silent areas of arterial damage. Um, and we also know from autopsy studies that patients who were thought to be in a remission at the time of death had ongoing vascular inflammation on their autopsy studies. So it's difficult for us to know if the activity that we're seeing on PET scans is indicative of 
true vascular inflammation or if it's from other nonspecific factors without us having histology and biopsies. But to better understand this, we've been honing in on how PET scans change in response to different treatments. Um, does the activity on PET go away, suggesting that it did represent active disease with treatment and can persistent activity on PET scans predict future relapse in some patients? The um, publication you're referring to, we specifically were looking at timing of PET scans. So when PET scans are used in oncology to assess for tumors and cancers, the patient is injected with the radio tracer and the scan is done one hour afterwards. Well, what we've seen in vasculitis is that if you wait a little bit more time, you get more increased uptake of the radio tracer in the vessel wall, and it also clears from the blood, so you're just making the vessel wall that much easier to visualize. So in the study, we had patients who were injected with the radio tracer and then had a PET scan at one hour and a second PET scan at two hour from the same radio tracer. And we saw that there were a number of patients that only had activity at the later two hour time point, um, which were missed at the earlier time point. And this becomes important to standardize the time that PET scans are done, whether it's at one hour, 90 minutes for two hours, because currently they're being done at all different times. And if you're comparing it in a patient over time to assess if they're having improvement or worsening, um, it becomes important that we're looking at the same time point. And particularly down the line, if PET scans are eventually incorporated into clinical trials to assess if a medication is working, um, we want to make sure we're looking at the same time point. And I think what you, you allude to is something that I'm sure just about every doctor has experienced as far as just a, a frustration when dealing with patients where, like you say, I mean, lab results can look good, but obviously if there, there are other things that are still happening and sometimes they're present, sometimes they aren't, which can, can certainly be even, even tougher to um, figure out. And I mean, I, I know I've had the, the same deal where my labs look great and yet my sinuses are just destroyed and it becomes sort of the well, now what next? And, and I guess that's sort of the, the question that you have to look at as, as a doctor when, when you're dealing with patients. So I'm, I'm wondering, too, what and it's just fascinating to hear about what the PET scan can potentially do. And you're obviously in a, a relatively early stage of that. But do you see this being a mechanism that potentially down the line is something that can be used to totally alter the course of potential treatment plans for individual patients when if, if you're able to get a, a level of confidence in that do you do you kind of envision that as being something that can kind of help change course for a patient who as you say on the surface might look okay but at the same time is, is telling you yeah I don't feel right or or maybe deep down and in, in some of the underlying stuff is is not in a, at an ideal point for where you would want to be even in a technical real technical remission type uh, setting for patients yeah, it can be really challenging and often very humbling when you think patients are doing well, everything's looking great on their blood work, and then they go on to experience the big flare in their disease when you think everything is going well. Um, so I hope PET can be incorporated into the assessment of disease activity in large vessel vasculitis. Um, like I was saying earlier, most of the 
studies to date and PET scans have been done at the time of diagnosis, but we are kind of looking at the utility in the later phases of the disease over time um, as a marker of evaluating disease activity. And I think in order to do that, we're looking at how PET scans may change in response to specific treatments. Um, do certain treatments reduce vascular inflammation on PET scans and therefore suggest that it's truly representing active disease? And because we still don't know the optimal duration of treatment in patients with large vessel vasculitis, we are looking to see once they are thought to be doing well and treatment is stopped, um, if we see an increase in activity on PET, could that be useful to predict patients who may relapse down the line? Um, so I think we hope that PET scans eventually are, are incorporated more into clinical practice to help guide management decisions, at least in a subset of patients. I think that's really interesting that it can be used in that way. I, I just, I mean, I'd have, I haven't used PET scans, PET scans personally, but just the thought of being able to make those predictions, I think can really be a game changer in terms of disease management and also just an anxiety reduction, just knowing that you can keep a better eye on things and it doesn't just have to be your gut and how, you know, how you're feeling in the moment. So I think that's just really fascinating work. So I'm, I'm glad to see it's, it's going on and I, I'm excited to see where it goes next. Uh, kind of switching gears, but just in terms of, you know, giving advice to other practitioners who are, are looking at these types of cases. I know that you're a member of the Outcome Measures in Rheumatology Vasculitis Working Group. So you obviously, in addition to this research, in addition to treating patients, you really know what's going on in terms of guidance right now. So do you have any resources or recommendations you can make to other practitioners uh, that you'd like to share? Well, OMERACT is a international group, and it's designed to develop outcome measures in many different diseases in rheumatology, with vasculitis being one of them. Um, so in order for randomized control trials and really any disease to be successful, you have to be able to look at valid endpoints in order to determine success. And so for each disease within rheumatology, these have to be individually customized and derived. Um, so there's some diseases in rheumatology where we have many validated outcome measures. A good example of that is rheumatoid arthritis, whereas in other diseases, like many forms of vasculitis, these really don't exist. Um, so OMERAC consists of many working groups for all different rheumatologic diseases, and these groups are made up of both physicians and patient research partners. Um, and the purpose is to create a more structured framework where we're able to learn from each other and learn from specialists and other diseases within rheumatology. So I've been involved in the working group that focuses on vasculitis. Um, and for example, we've been talking a lot about imaging and large vessel vasculitis today. And as part of the vasculitis working group, we've also been thinking about how can we incorporate PET scans as an outcome measure in future clinical trials to kind of help standardize our approach to this disease. And do you think, uh, I know just personally, in terms of I was just paying my medical bills last night. So do you think that that would be, I guess, a hard push in terms of getting insurance companies on board, in terms of getting clinicians on board? Or do you think that if you can, as you have in, in your recent paper, demonstrate how useful it is and how it can you know, prevent potentially future relapses, do you think that it, that would be able to make a strong case for uh, it getting used more frequently? 
I think right now it's still in the research phases and not standard of care clinical practice. Um, but our hope is over time, as we have more data supporting its use, that that changes. Um, right now, PET scans are improved for evaluating cancer. Um, they're not always approved for evaluating vasculitis, but I think our hope is as we have more data to support its use in vasculitis that that changes down the line. Um, but right now it's considered a research study and part of our evaluation that we do at NIH of patients with large vessel vasculitis who are coming to be evaluated, um, but it's not currently standard of care um, in clinical practice. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, Kaylee has been paying her medical bills. <laughs> Slowly but surely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, gives, it, it makes us all feel better that uh, Kaylee, Kaylee's got that thing. <laughs> you know, and I, I guess it kind of also it ties in as well to just the thing we sort of started this uh, podcast episode, Dr. Quinn, talking about, and that's just the whole the, the whole idea of progress and, and maybe what you've seen since you started with this, or even since maybe even if, when you were just had, had a general uh, knowledge or interest in it. And before you even started working in the field specifically, if you felt like this, you know, where this progress has gone um, here, just, just as a whole. So, you know, with, with some of these working groups that obviously you haven't, uh, and you mentioned how it's, it's international and how a lot of the, uh, a lot of the knowledge is starting to spread worldwide. And, and there've been a lot of different uh, ventures and projects that have looked at research on these uh, so do you feel like with with these working groups, do you see that being just one of those, I guess, benchmarks of of that general progress uh, progression as far as momentum you're making? Do you do you feel like there are going to be others that uh, that come along maybe in more specific areas they might not have as uh, they could be tailored more to specific um, clinicians who, who only look at one or two different things that might have a, an impact in, in vasculitis, say, you have groups that maybe look at what ENT involvement could be in or strict pulmonary involvement like that. Do you, do you see a, a branching out of that or do you see it more being a, a focus on the one you already have, a, a kind of singular group that tries to just improve its reach overall and, and kind of increase its influence on the medical community just as a whole? Well, I think the different working groups are in all different areas of rheumatology, um, but even within vasculitis, we kind of have some subgroups, one that's dedicated to large vessel vasculitis, one that's dedicated to ANCA-associated vasculitis, and I think that may change over time depending on needs and different subsets of vasculitis. Interesting. Yeah, and I know it's like for patients like Kaylee and I, it's something we're always uh, and I'm sure for doctors too, they're always monitoring just because you wonder, okay, what what's the next step in this, and uh, and and where will it go? And like I know for you working in a a big facility and and working on the East Coast, like you have with people like uh, Dr. Grayson, Dr. Cups, who have done a lot in the the vasculitis field um, as a whole. So what sort of things have like have you kind of gleaned from them? just as far as, as this kind of overall desire to help doctors, help young younger rheumatologists learn more about this disease and not necessarily strictly make them focus on it, but just have a greater awareness of some of those intricacies that get, can get looked over quite easily when you're maybe evaluating a patient for the first time that presents some of those symptoms. Yeah, I've been fortunate to have wonderful mentors and to have the opportunity to work in the NIH vasculitis program 
um, which actually was started back in the 1970s by Dr. Tony Fauci before he did work in HIV AIDS and global pandemics like we're currently facing with coronavirus. And Dr. Thomas Copps, who trained me during my rheumatology fellowship at Georgetown, had worked with Dr. Fauci in the initial vasculitis program. And this program ran until the early 2000s and then was reestablished by Dr. Peter Grayson in 2014. And since my vasculitis fellowship in 2017, I've been fortunate to work in the vasculitis translational research program there. Um, but I think having good mentors is an important aspect. I wish you could see my face right now because my jaw just drops. I did not know that history uh, of the vas vasculitis yeah. translational research program. That's really cool. Yeah, back in the 1970s. That's going to be my claim to fame every time he comes on TV now. Be like, oh, well, I have the yeah. disease. <laughs> he did a lot of the early work in uh, GPA. Wow. Cool. Sorry, slight slight nerd uh, <laughs> jump in I, here. But, I can uh, <laughs> picture Kaylee right now. Uh, like, <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could picture her just like fat, just freaking out. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so I know. Yeah. Now you're gonna hold. That, you're gonna hold that over me, Kaylee. That you have. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and my, over my EGP, you're you're now officially cool. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You're rare though, so it kind of balances out. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, Doctor is the real the real superstar of this though. So that that's the real that's the real point we're trying to make. I guess. <laughs> Definitely. And I guess just to kind of start to wrap us up here, do you have um, I guess any directions you want to see the field go in in the next 10 or so years do you is there something in particular that you're really hoping that um, the field can achieve or you know some type of research you really want to see expanded yeah I think this is an exciting time in the field of vasculitis uh, but we still have a lot to learn so in the next 10 years I hope we have better treatments with successful randomized control trials and some forms of vasculitis where we're lacking a lot of data about treatment, like in Pachyoses arteritis, as we were discussing earlier. Um, and also, as we've been speaking about, we've been using PET scans for research purposes at the NIH for several years now and learning a great deal. So I hope we're able to further incorporate imaging into clinical trials and practice enlarged vessel vasculitis as a way of assessing disease activity down the line. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know uh, for Kaylee and I as patients, we've been appreciative of your work. I'm sure for other doctors in the field, they can they can learn a lot from this. And, and I, I, I think, as Kaylee was alluding to earlier, just the the whole concept of the PET scans and what that potential is, obviously, in these diseases, there's so many intricacies and complexities like we've been talking about that that it's not like it can be a a, a one-stop uh, answer necessarily but it's still really I think uh, one of those things that gives us a lot of a lot of hope especially in some of the diseases that have been uh, really really difficult so I think we're, we're excited to see how that uh, plays out as well and, and with the work you've done with NIH and, and through the the uh, different VF fellowships as well and and all of that I think it's uh, it's been cool to see the development so we're really appreciative uh, of you, Dr. Quinn, coming on our, our podcast today and, uh, and educating a lot of medical professionals who I know are, are, uh, are trying to learn more about this, uh, even in the, the crazy times we're in right now. So uh, we thank you so much for, for coming on and, and, of course, continued success in all of the research that, uh, that you are continuing to do.
Thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. Thanks, Dr. Pitt. Absolutely. It's been our pleasure today. And I know Kaylee, especially as a patient of yours, was appreciative as well. Yes, very much so. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so that, again, is Dr. Caitlin Quinn. Uh, we want to thank her for coming on the podcast once again. We'll uh, take a quick break, come back and wrap up this episode of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast right after this. All right, back with Kaylee, host chat with Dr. Caitlin Quinn and a really fascinating a conversation to have with her. I feel like I learned a lot and I'm now very interested, as I kind of alluded to <laughs> multiple times, uh, Kaylee, to see where PET scans go uh, <laughs> in the future. And, and you were also you're still, uh, I think, just fangirling over the fact that there's what, like a two degree now of separation between you and uh, and uh, Dr. Fauci. Basically. It's like knowing a celebrity. I've already texted probably 10 group chats with my bio <laughs> friends. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you, honestly. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's worthwhile. Um, so that was yeah, that, a big takeaway for me. And, and again, it's you know I think about some of my some of my friends who have Takiasus, and you know you it's always one of those things where as patients, you know you sort of think you've been through it all and, and you've had this terrible experience with everything, and, and then you kind of hear about other people, and, and it always seems like there are uh, there are worse cases to be had, and, and a lot of times for no fault of that particular patient, it's just the the nature of vasculitis, and it's a big reason why we're you know, we're doing these podcasts and to help doctors understand more about the disease. But I can think of a couple people off the top of my head who uh, who almost didn't make it through their own uh, battles against Takayasu specifically, uh, just with with everything that that entails. So it's exciting to hear that there is that attention given to diseases like that, where there are still so many struggles in diagnosis and in uh, post remission. So I, I think that it should give people a lot of um, hope and optimism going forward, just especially to think that with how many different types of diseases that diseases there are within our vasculitis family, that um, there are not any that are being ignored. And it's a good thing that, that we have people like Dr. Quinn to, to help out with that. I agree. I And I also just like that we have that perspective on the podcast, because I think the two of us talk so much about ANCA-associated vasculitis that, you know, we don't know necessarily as much about large vessel vasculitis. It's not what we uh, have. It's not, in my case, what I studied. So I really appreciated that perspective as well. Yeah. And it's it's something, too, that is, you know, as much as we hate to talk about it, like a lot of times the big pharmaceutical companies can drive what is is studied. And so, something that is, I guess, r rarer or can be considered like a sexy, quote unquote, uh, disease to study can a lot of times get more funding and, and uh, can kind of vary between different diseases. But yeah, it's nice to hear that some of those other ones that might not be the first you think of when you think of, I feel like a lot of people think of vasculitis and they think of Wagner's GPA and they think of um, eGPA. So it's nice to uh, to get that perspective, uh, as you were mentioning um, as well. And I know for you personally, Kaylee, it had to be cool getting to talk to your own doctor outside of the actual <laughs> uh, hospital room. It really was. It was a great time. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking uh, and, and previewing what we're coming, what we have coming up next, uh, we have another, um, it's actually a pair of doctors or a doctor, nurse, husband, wife duo that we'll be talking to that have a really interesting uh, story in the Andersons. Mark and Nancy Anderson will join us next. That is part of a two-part podcast, and I know Kaylee, you're you're really excited for that because we we tackle a lot of different things. Uh, it's not totally clinical, but it it kind of relates to the patient side as well. And 
as we always talk about trying to give different perspectives and different angles on vasculitis as a whole, I, I really feel like this will um, give people a lot of that. And those will be our next couple podcasts that we post. Yes, tune in for those in a couple weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll wrap things up. This has been another episode of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. Stay tuned to our Spotify channel as well as on Apple Podcasts as we'll continue to post uh, these episodes every two weeks on Fridays. So for Kaylee and for Dr. Quinn, I am Ben saying so long. Hope you tune in next time. This has been an episode of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast.